Well, today we're going to talk about one of the great themes that we see in Scripture, and this is that God is the God of reversals. This is kind of the hope we have, even as Christians and followers of Jesus, that the things that are aren't going to be the things that always will be. And the theme of reversals is kind of a major theme in a lot of literature and part of our culture. I mean, the story of little orphan Annie, you know, who starts as an orphan and gets adopted by Daddy Warbucks and lives in a mansion, a God of reversals, that we love the story. Mark Twain, the prince and the pauper of this guy who grew up impoverished, becomes an earl in the king's court, or, or the movie series Rocky, where uh, Rocky Balboa starts as a street fighter and doesn't have much hope and ends up being a world champion, or he, even the story of Slumdog Millionaire, this guy who grows up uh, in the streets and ends up getting fame and because of his intelligence or ability to answer questions, that we love these stories of reversal. And I think it's because deep within our hearts, there's this longing really for heaven and restoration that when God created us, he made you and I for the Garden of Eden. He made us for this sense of perfection and this Edenic paradise, but then sin entered the world and mars that, and our longing has been to get back there. And today we're gonna look at how in the story of Esther that God restores everything that had been taken away. And it's not just a story for Esther. It's not a nice story about a Jewish orphan 2,500 years ago. This is the gospel story. This is a picture of the great reversal that God has for us. So I don't know today, even as you're listening, what the longing is in your heart, what you're wanting God. Maybe it's to restore a relationship, to restore hope, restore peace. Maybe it's a God who needs to restore a situation or a job or something in our life that we hope that God may restore in this life, but the promise is that he will restore it in the next life, that we have a God of great reversals who restores things even better than what they were. So if in your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Esther chapter eight. We've been making our way through this story. We started in chapter one, it's about 580 BC that we start with King Xerxes, who's uh, the king of Persia. He has a drunken dinner party. He wants his wife to perform and show off. She refuses, so he exiles her. He makes deals for all the women that they have to obey their husbands. Uh, then in chapter two, he's missing his wife. And so they come up with this kind of beauty pageant idea, so to speak, of finding a new wife for Xerxes, which is really an ancient slave uh, sex trade operation. And uh, finally, Esther, this young orphan who is raised by her cousin Mordecai, becomes the queen. And even though God isn't mentioned in the story, we see his fingerprints there. Then we look a little bit at Mordecai, the cousin of Esther, who uh, has a role in the government of some sort, but there's this other guy, Haman, who becomes the vizier, kind of the second in command, and he's angry because Mordecai won't bow down to him. So he makes an edict, and in Persian culture, edicts could not be changed, but an edict that Mordecai should be killed and all the Jewish people, because that's who Mordecai represented. Mordecai goes to Esther, says, hey, we've got someone here in the palace. Esther, can you help us? <coughs> Esther, 
doesn't want to help. She doesn't think that she's safe enough to be able to do that. But finally, she gathers the courage. She goes, she's going to approach the king. And instead of saying, hey, would you help my people? She says, would you come to dinner? And Esther has Haman and Mordecai, or Esther has Haman and Xerxes for dinner. Then she says, let's do it again. It's been so nice. And we think maybe she's weakening a little bit, but she's just giving God some room to work. And we've seen how in the intervening time that God reminded Xerxes that he never honored Mordecai for helping to expose a plot to kill him. And so he wants Haman to honor Mordecai and Haman has to parade him around the streets. And then when they gather for dinner again, Esther exposes Haman and his plot. And Haman is immediately hung on a gallows that Haman had planned for Mordecai. And then now we're going to see how God restores everything back better than it was before. And this is the hope that we have, that God is a God of restoration and even makes things better than what they were. So Esther chapter 8, we're going to see that God, the God of great reversals, restores finances, restores politics, and restores justice. We read in verse 1 that there's this financial reversal. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai came before the king because Esther had disclosed what he was to her. And so here we see it's the same day. This has been a very busy day. Esther exposes Haman's plot. Haman is pierced on uh, the gallows that have been prepared. And now the king gives to Esther all of Haman's money, all of his property, everything that he has. And it says here, because she had exposed the plot because of what she did. She not only exposed the plot, but she exposed who Mordecai was, that they were cousins, that they were Jewish people. Now in Persian law, if you accused someone of doing something, and that person was found guilty, guess what? You got to have all their property. Kind of your reward for exposing the plot was that you were gonna get the property. And because Esther has exposed Haman and his plot, she was to get everything that he had. All of a sudden, this poor girl who was an orphan who had nothing, lost everything, is now one of the richest people in all of Persia. And we see this, remember Haman, when he went to King Xerxes and wanted Xerxes to kind of write this decree about spoiling the Jews, he was gonna give to the king, add to the treasury up to about a third of the, of the GDP of Persia, give this exorbitant amount. And we think, how could Haman do that? How could he afford to do that? Because he exposed that the Jewish people weren't the best citizens in the land. And so when he destroyed them, he and others were gonna take all their property. They were gonna have the riches of what the Jewish people had in Persia. He was gonna become very rich, but instead of him becoming rich, Esther takes all of Haman's property. And here we see this hope, God of reversals, that Esther gets everything. She suddenly has much more. And this is the hope that we have. Not the hope that we're always going to be rich, not the hope that we're going to get things, but that God is going to restore the fortunes that are lost for us. I love how in the prophet Joel, he writes it this way. He says in Joel chapter 2, verse 25, I will restore to you the years the swarming locusts have eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. I will restore the years, the days, 
that the locusts have eaten. And in that day, there were four years that Israel experienced great famine. They lost everything. They had very little food. And God comes back and he says, I'm going to restore that. This is my promise, that what the enemy has taken away, what has been stolen away from you, that I am going to restore. And friends, this is the hope that we have. And that God is going to restore justice and righteousness and truth. He's going to restore our character. He's going to restore our dignity. He's going to restore that has been taken away. And of course, our great hope is that that would be in this life, but sometimes it's not till the next life. But notice what it says here. He says, I'm going to restore what? I'm going to restore the years the locusts have eaten. Now, we can see what a home is like restored after it's been burnt down. We can see what uh, a bank account is like after a cybercrime or theft, how you can get money back. We can see how health can be restored after a period of sickness. But notice it says that time is restored. I'm gonna restore what, the years. And I think a lot of us sometimes, the regrets that we have are just the waste of time, the lost time, the years that have been wasted in our life. And sometimes they've been wasted on foolish things. They've been wasted on bitterness. They've been wasted not seeking God. They've been wasted in searching for our own fame or fortune that really has netted us very little. And I know a lot of people get to a point in their life, and maybe that's you today, where you think, what a my purpose? What do I need to do? And I look at my life and I feel like I've wasted so much. And God says, I'm going to restore, this is a promise, the years the locusts have eaten, the time that has been wasted. And I think if there's something we want restored, a fortune we want restored, it's time. Time in our culture is almost more valuable than money. And how does God do that? How does he restore those days? He can restore them with greater intimacy with him. And friends, those days it may have been wasted. Time may have been wasted, but God can restore, right, the time. He can restore the intimacy that we can uh, dig deep into God. We can seek him. We can find. God can renew the spiritual passion. And we may think, oh, I've wasted my life. And I know a number of people, sometimes they come to Jesus at 60, 70, 80 years of age, and they think, oh, I've wasted my life. But God can restore that. God can still use the years in our life for his good. That's the promise. He's gonna restore the years. He can restore the influence of the years. And sometimes people look at their life and they think, I've not done a lot. I've not made an impact or an influence. One, one of the great hopes that we have is study after study says that people are the most influential in their 60s, secondly most influential in their 70s, that there's never a time that we can't have influence and impact. And sometimes people say, well, I've wasted my time, but God can use kind of just a broken marriage. He can use that to help others. God can use people who come out of addictions to be able to help others. God can use what you've learned from the past to invest. God can take the brokenness of the past and use it for an impact for the future. And maybe you look back and you think, there's been some hard times and difficult times. How does God restore it? Is that he takes the pain of those moments out and helps us remember when he's there. So I don't know what you need a reversal on. Maybe there's something that's been stolen away or taken. Maybe it's time, maybe it's something else. The great hope is that God will bring justice in the next life, but that he will restore the time 
that's been wasted and taken away in ours. Esther experiences this great reversal of fortune. Secondly, there's this reversal of political power. Esther, who really felt like she had no power, and Mordecai, who was really at the whim of Haman, all of a sudden experience great power. Notice what it goes on to say in verse 2 of chapter 8. It says, the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken away from Haman, and he gave it to Mordecai. And Esther sent Mordecai over the house of Haman. So what does Esther do? Esther says, I don't really need all of the money that I have. I'm here in the palace. I'm with the king. I don't need that. She gives it all to her cousin Mordecai, who has helped to raise her and encouraged her and supported her. But now Mordecai has what? He's got the signet ring. He's over the house of Haman. He's now really the vizier's second in command. He goes from being an exiled Jewish individual who are powerless taken in the land to all of a sudden being second in command. This is very much like the story of Joseph. We see these pictures of a great reversal, what God wants to do in our life all throughout scripture. In the book of uh, Genesis, uh, it says in, about Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused uh, by Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison. It says in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as of today. We see this positional reversal, that we who were maybe once victims is what Joseph is saying. It's a, now I'm a victor. God brought it for good. And what we see here is that God can change our position and situation on a dime. How we see things, our perspective may not be what reality is. If you looked right at Mordecai or Esther, I mean, they would look at their life and their story and they might say, well, from my perspective, I've kind of been a victim. We're, we're here in a culture that doesn't respect us. We're here in a culture that's not very spiritual. We've been taken exile. We're foreigners in this land. Um, I'm a, a, an orphan. I've lost my mom and my dad. I don't have anybody to raise me, but my cousin who was there, Mordecai, could say, hey, I've been hated and someone doesn't like me and I'm in a difficult situation. And it's easy for us to say, oh, things can't change. That person can't change. This situation can't change. The enemy's not going to let us change. And a lot of times we get stuck. And what Esther reminds us of is that our position doesn't have the last word. Someone else in our life doesn't have the last word. God has the last word. And that God is a God of reversals. And God can change things on a dime. And we see that for Mordecai. We see that for Esther. And sometimes what happens is that we get stuck in our own stories. And we create a story based only on what we see, not on what God sees. And not on what God can do. And you notice... In our graphic of Esther, there's these small leaves that kind of express the idea of the winds of change. Things can change on a dime, and God can change your situation. And here was Esther, right? She was an orphan raised by her cousin, didn't have much, uh, was part of a people group that, that was not highly respected. She ends up in the king's 
harem, she becomes favored by him, but then it seems like maybe even for a while she's forgotten. Does she have much political power? But what happens? She's got a cousin who encourage her, uh, encourages her. She turns to God. She calls God's people to pray. She begins to seek him, and God changes everything. And she is no longer a victim, right? She is a victor. She is no longer just the person who's kind of stuck in her situation. With God with her, this perspective changes. And friends, I see God do this. I could see people's lives change. I've seen people who have invited family members for one, two, three, 10, 15 years, invite them to know about Jesus, come to Jesus, come to church, experience something. And all of a sudden, after 15 years, something changes and they begin to open up spiritually. I've had people who have said, uh, my marriage, it's dead, dead, dead. It'll never recover. All of a sudden, God does a new thing in their marriage. I've seen people who've had their children right, who have walked away, abandoned them, prodigal children who have turned their backs on their parents for whatever reason, all of a sudden something happens and their heart changes. I've seen people who struggle with addiction day after day after day after day and somehow, God somehow gets a hold of their life. Friends, don't write our story, don't write your story based on what you see. If Esther did that, it would never have changed. Write your story based on who God is, that he is the God of reversals. He is the God who hears our prayers. He is a God who can be found when people seek him. You see, this is the story of Esther. When you look at Esther, you see a story of salvation. It starts out with sin, right? The sin of, of Xerxes and the way he mistreats his life, the sin of Haman and the way that Haman uh, has it out for Mordecai, that that Sin re always results in suffering. That's what happens in our life. There's suffering. And that Esther suffers it in the harem and goes through uh, this rigorous trial. That Mordecai is suffering under the hands of Haman. And that suffering often causes us to seek God. And we see Esther seeking God. She gives God room to work. We see Mordecai seeking help. We see the people seeking God in fasting. And that results in the great reversal of fortune. God changes. And friends, we see here the whole gospel that out of our sin that leads to suffering in our life, when we seek God, God brings redemption and restoration, maybe in this life, but ultimately in the next life. And we wonder sometimes, this is what Esther reminds us of, how do we live as people of faith in a world that is very different, in a, very, in a world that is a very secular, in a very, world that's very hedonistic, in a world that's gone wild and doesn't always make sense, is that we write our story not based on what the world is like. We write our story based on who God is. And that's what we see next. As we see in the rest of this chapter, uh, there is this reversal of the future and the reversal of justice. And we go on in verse three, it says, then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, pleaded for his compassion to avert the evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot, which had devised against the Jews. And the king extending his golden scepter to Esther. So Esther got up and stood before the king. And then she said, well, if 
if it pleases the king, and I found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I'm pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letter devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agathite, which he wrote to eliminate the Jews who were all in the king's provinces. For how can I endure, she says, to see the disaster which will happen to my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? So King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jews, Behold, I've given the house of Haman to Esther. They've hanged him on the wooden gallows because he had reached out his hand against the Jews. And so we see here that a couple months have passed, probably between verse 2 and verse 3. When you look a little bit later at the dates and what's mentioned, a couple months have probably passed. And all of a sudden, Esther begins to realize she's been safe. Mordecai's been honored, but what about her people? This law is still there. Maybe she's thinking the king is going to reverse it. That hasn't happened. But remember, the king can't reverse a law. And the law of the Medes and Persians, once there was a law, it could not ever, ever be changed. And all of a sudden, Esther's feeling sympathy and empathy for the people. The people are going to suffer. And she goes to the king, falls on her knees, pleads for her people, pleads for grace. I think, what a picture of prayer for us. Like, who is it that we need to pray for and ask God to intercede that for them, that's it, for their lostness, for their separation from God, how far they are, that we would have that same heart for people to want to be restored. But she falls at the king's feet and, and says, hey, this law is there. Nothing's happened. Can you do something about it? And what is Mordecai, or what is Xerxes, King Ahasuerus' response? His response is, hey, wait a minute. I gave the signet ring to Mordecai. He's got control over the house. He's second in command. Why hasn't he done anything? I mean, that's basically what the king is saying. Why is it Mordecai? You've got the power and the authority to do something and you're not doing it. And I think here, this is a picture of the fullness of the gospel, what Jesus did, that Jesus went to the cross, he suffered and died for us, not just to give us eternal life in the future, but to give us eternal life now that we have so much given to us. It's such a great salvation that God has given us in Christ. When Christ is with us, such incredible riches, but we're wasting them. I mean, that's the question. What are you doing with the fullness of salvation that God has given you? Notice how James writes it this way in James 4, verse 2. He says, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. And what's James saying? You're living kind of in all this mess of life. Why? Because you've not prayed. You've not asked God. You've got all these riches. Right? Ephesians, it says we're seated in the heavenlies. We're adopted as his children. We're sons and daughters. Peter says, you and I, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything. That we have such a rich salvation. Jesus said, I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. And, and Jesus in, in the Gospel of John says, it's better it's going to be better now that the Holy Spirit is in you than it was with me with you. And Jesus says a mind-blowing thing. He says, you having the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, that's going to be better than me just being with you. And what do we do with the Holy Spirit? 
And, and what we see here in Esther is this picture that we have a great reversal. God's in our life. We've been spared. God's been with us. And what happens? What happens? We waste it. We don't do things. We go around as, as, as kind of uh, lost children again saying, oh, I'm so weak. I'm so sad. Nothing's going to change. How do we live in this world? We live with the power and the resources. And we're going to talk about this in our next series as we look at Ephesians chapter 6 and talk about the spiritual battle and life in the spiritual arena that we have. And how do we tap into that? And, and here's what really the king is saying to Esther and Mordecai. You have all this power and ability. Would you use it? And friends, this is what God would say to us today. Walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Be guided, led by the Holy Spirit. You're seated in the heavenlies that we've been given, right, spiritual power. Jesus said, I'm giving you keys to the kingdom. And we walk in such weakness. And we're going to look uh, uh, in the next few weeks about how to walk really in the power of what God has given us. And so what happens? The king says, hey, Mordecai, you can change this. I can't change the law. But he says in verse 8, now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's secret signet ring for a decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring can't be revoked. He says, Mordecai, you write what you need. He says, you've got power and authority to do that because I'm giving it to you. God has given us power and authority. So the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, it's the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and it was written in accordance with everything that Mordecai commanded the Jews. The satraps, the governments, the officials of the province, which extended from India to Kush, 127 provinces, to every province according to its script, and to every people according to their language, as well as to the Jews according to their script and their language. And he wrote it in the name of the king Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horses, riding on royal relay horses, offspring of racing mares. In the letters the king granted the Jews, who were in each and every city, the right to assemble and to defend their lives, to destroy, kill, and eliminate the entire army of any people or province which was going to attack them, including children and women, and to plunder their spoils. On one day, in all of the provinces of the king of Ajuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, that's the month of Adar, a copy of the edict to be issued as law in each and every province was published to all the peoples. So the Jews would be ready for this day to avenge themselves and their enemies. The couriers, hurrying and speeded by the king's command, left riding on the royal relay horses, and the decree was issued at the citadel of Susa. And here's what we see, that the king said, hey, Mordecai, you've got power and authority. you got spiritual authority. Now use it. So he writes an edict. Notice he can't undo what Haman had said, but he said, okay, when the Jewish people were going to be attacked on that day in the month of Adar, that the Jewish people could defend themselves. Now, sometimes I hear messages, I read, look at people who say, some people, a few people say, well, look how mean Mordecai was. He's there saying, hey, 
They want, the Jewish people can go and kill women and children. They can win an army attacks. They can go and plunder and take everything. And sometimes this is what we see. You may have even had conversations with people who say, hey, I don't like the Old Testament. I don't like God. Look at the God's a God of war. He's a God of violence. Look, he wants innocent children to suffer and women who were innocent things, uh, unspeakable things happening to them. What kind of God would do that? But that's not what Mordecai's edict was. Mordecai wasn't saying to the Jewish people, it's a role reversal, you go out and you plunder and you steal and you kill. That's not what it is. He says only the edict is you can defend yourself. In fact, if you look at chapter three, where Haman's original edict was given in verse 13, you see that Mordecai uses basically the same words to talk about what happens. If an army, if a people are coming and they're coming to attack you, oh Jewish person, you can defend yourself. You can defend yourself. And if your life supposedly is in risk, you can defend yourself. And if even in fact, if you're killing people, they're not necessarily completely innocent because they're trying to attack you. And the Jewish people had the right to defend themselves. And, and we'll see in the next couple chapters about 75 to 100,000 uh, Persian men were killed in the process as they were trying to loot and, and to kill the Jewish people. But it doesn't say that there were any innocent people, no children, no women, there was no plundering. The Jewish people didn't act in reverse. They didn't take stuff from the Persian people. They just defended themselves, even to the point of having to take another life to protect theirs. And here's what we see, that God ultimately is not a God of war. You look at the Old Testament, there are, yes, a few times where he tells people they can destroy themselves, but God's a God of peace. He wants peace between people. And what Mordecai does is to give a law that would help. It wouldn't change the law of Haman, which is incredible. Here's this evil guy, Haman. It doesn't change the law. It gives people a source of protection. Now, when we look, I think, at the laws of the Medes and the Persians, we think this is crazy town, right? Why, why would there be laws that you could not change? Right, because we live in a world where different governments come in, different parties come in, and laws get changed all the time. Right, during prohibition, it was a law you couldn't drink or sell alcohol. Now you can drink. Then it was you couldn't do marijuana. Now marijuana uh, is legal. We have all these laws. You couldn't be uh, do anything unless you were vaccinated. And now they've kind of changed that law, and you don't have to be vaccinated. Laws get changed all the time. You. Uh, could used to only drive 100 kilometers an hour on the 400 series highways. Now, sometimes it's 110. Laws get changed. And so we live with this idea that things change, laws change. But God's word is like the law of the Medes and Persians. It doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. God's promises never change. See, I think sometimes because we live in a world that's changing all the time, we think, oh, God's law changed or we can change it or it's not true. His word never changes. In fact, or Proverbs 30, verse 5, Solomon says, every word of God proves true. Every word proves true. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. And friends, this is the story of, uh, of Esther and Mordecai. Why did we understand Mordecai went to Esther because he knew God's word was like the law of the Medes and Persians. It couldn't be changed. God had promised 
a savior from the Jewish people. The Jewish people would not be wiped out. He lived on God's promise. And every word of God is true. And so sometimes we live our life based on our circumstances. We live on what we see. Friends, we can't live our life that way. We have to live on what the word of God is true. And what does his word say? His word says the wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin, the result of a sinful life, right? It's death, it's suffering, it's destruction. But we don't want to do that because we don't want to think, oh, that's sin or that's there. What does God's word says? He says, don't lie. Well, yeah, I know God says don't lie, but, but you can twist the truth a little bit. And, and yeah, don't lie to people who are important in your life. But, but, but you can like not be honest on your income tax. We try to change things. God's word's true. He says, don't steal. Right? Don't take something that's not yours. Yeah, well, I'm not going to go rob a bank or I'm not going to rob a jewelry store, but, but, but we'll like exchange passwords and, and we'll use other people's accounts and, and, and we'll try to kind of work around the system. You know, God's word says, you, you know, don't covet another person's spouse. Well, that's probably true unless you've got a bad marriage or your spouse really isn't into you, and then maybe you can find a little bit on the side. What we try to do, friends, is we try to change God's word. We try to think, oh, it's like our government laws. They can be changed kind of according to the situations or as culture changes, but there is gonna be a day when you and I are gonna stand before a holy God. And this is our warning, this is our reminder. And, and, and it says, the wages of sin is death. All of us have sinned. We've all fall short. None of us will be able to argue our way out. The laws God don't change. It's not like, oh, well, that was kind of the Old Testament. God now sees our society. He knows how hard it is. The wages of sin, it's death. And those laws can't change. And you look at the Old Testament, there are Old Testament laws, the Old covenant. This was how you had to live. This is what it was uh, to live a life that was holy before a holy God. And, and if we continue to say in our life, get away from me, God, get away from me, God, eventually God's going to say, I'll get away from you. But God sent Jesus and wrote a new law, a new covenant, that Jesus went to the cross, paid the price, the wages of sin for us, and he paid a price so that we wouldn't have to pay it. And when we stand before a holy God, Jesus comes to our aid, he comes to our side, and, and he says, this person knows me, they're hidden in me. My blood covers them. They are sinless because their life is hidden in me. Don't see them, Father, see me. And this is a reminder from the book of Esther that there is a restoration, that there is God is a God of renewal. Next week, as we celebrate baptism, we're going to look that God is a God of renewal, of joy. He turns our mourning, our sorrow, our suffering into gladness. That's what God does. But I would just encourage you today, don't. Don't look at your life, evaluate your life based on your circumstances. And remember that God rewrote the law for Jesus and if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we would love for you to know him. If, as you're watching, please put a message in. Please let us know. Put a prayer request in. We'd love to share with you about how you can know and grow in Jesus. Let's pray together.
and if you don't have a relationship with him and uh, you realize one day you're going to stand before him and uh, God's, you've got a lot of explaining to do. You can say, hey, Jesus, I know that you came and you lived and you died. You paid my price. I recognize I'm a sinner and that I just need salvation. I need God. I've been walking in the fruit of my own sin and I need to walk in the fruit of God's restoration. Jesus, come into my life. Take charge of my life. Be Lord of my life. And Father, I just pray for those who are maybe waiting for you to restore the time, the days, the things that the locusts have taken away. And God, I pray you would give them patience, that you would restore that in this life. Uh, But Lord, that you would give us patience to wait till the next life. And Father, I pray for those who are looking at their life and evaluating it based on their circumstances and forget that you can change your situation on a dime, that you are working behind the scenes, that the winds of change are there. And would we seek you and be found by you? And would we know the power of the great reversal in our life? In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.